0: Part two, chapter eight of The White Peacock by D. H. Lawrence, this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Part two, chapter eight. A poem of friendship. The magnificent promise of spring was broken before the May blossom was fully out. All through the beloved month, the wind rushed in upon us from the north and northeast, bringing the rain fierce and heavy. The tender budded trees shuddered and moaned when the wind was dry the young leaves flapped limp the grass and corn grew lush but the light of the daddy lands was quite extinguished and it seemed that only a long time back had we made merry before the broad glare of these flowers the bluebells lingered and lingered they fringed the fields for weeks like purple fringe of morning the pink campions came out only to hang heavy with rain. Hawthorn buds remained tight and hard as pearls, shrinking into the brilliant green foliage. The forget-me-nots, the poor Pleiades of the woods, were ragged weeds. Often at the end of the day the sky opened and stately clouds hung over the horizon infinitely far away, glowing through the yellow distance with an amber luster. They never came any nearer. Always they remained far off, looking calmly and majestically over the shivering earth. Then, saddened, fearing their radiance might be dimmed, they drew away and sank out of sight. Sometimes towards sunset a great shield stretched dark from the west to the zenith, tangling the light along its edges. As the canopy rose higher, it broke, dispersed, and the sky was primrose-coloured, high and pale above the crystal moon. Then. The cattle crouched among the gorse, distressed by the cold, while the long-billed snipe flickered round high overhead, round and round in great circles, seeming to carry a serpent from its throat, and crying a tragedy, more painful than the poignant lamentations and protests of the Peewits. Following these evenings came mornings cold and grey. Such a morning I went up to George on the top fallow. His father was out with the milk. He was alone. As I came up the hill, I could see him standing in the cart, scattering manure over the bare red fields. I could hear his voice calling now and then to the mare, and the creak and clank of the cart as it moved on. Starlings and smart wagtails were running briskly over the clods, and many little birds flashed, fluttered, hopped here and there. The lapwings wheeled and cried as ever between the low clouds and the earth and some ran beautifully among the furrows, too graceful and listening for the rough field. I took a fork and scattered the mature along the hollows, and thus we worked, with a wide field between us, yet very near in the sense of intimacy. I watched him through the wheeling peewits as the low clouds went stealthily overhead. Beneath us the spars of the poplars in the spinney were warm gold, as if the blood shone through. Further gleamed the grey water, and below it the red roofs. Nethermere was half hidden and far away. There was nothing in this grey, lonely world but the peewits swinging and crying, and George swinging silently at his work. The movement of active life held all my attention, and when I looked up, it was to see the motion of his limbs and his head, the rise and fall of his rhythmic body, and the rise and fall of the slow waving peewits. After a while when the cart was empty he took a fork and came towards me working at my task. It began to rain so he brought a sack from the cart and we crushed ourselves under the thick hedge. We sat close together and watched the rain fall like a grey striped curtain before us hiding the valley. We watched it trickle in dark streams off the mare's back as she stood dejectedly. We listened to the swish of the drops falling all about we felt the chill of the rain and drew ourselves together in silence. He smoked his pipe, and I lit a cigarette. The rain continued. All the little pebbles on the red earth glistened in the grey gloom. We sat together, speaking occasionally. It was at these times we formed them almost passionate attachment, which later years slowly wore away. When the rain was over, we filled our buckets with potatoes and went along the wet furrows, sticking the spritted tubers in the cold ground. Being sandy, the field dried quickly. About twelve o'clock, when nearly all the potatoes were set, he left me and, fetching up Bob from the far hedge side, harnessed the mare and him to the ridger to cover the potatoes. The sharp, light plough turned to the soil in a fine furrow over the potatoes. Hosts of little birds fluttered, settled, bounded off again after the plough. He called to the horses, and they came downhill, the white stars on the two brown noses nodding up and down, George striding firm and heavy behind. They came down upon me. At a call, the horses turned, shifting awkwardly sideways. He flung himself against the plough, and, leaning well in, brought it round with a sweep, a click, and they are off uphill again. There is a great rustle as the birds sweep round after him and follow up the new-turned furrow. Untackling the horses when the rows were all covered, we tramped behind them down the wet hillside to dinner. I kicked through the drenched grass, crushing the withered cowslips under my clogs, avoiding the purple orchids that were stunted with harsh upbringing, but magnificent in their powerful colouring, crushing the pallid lady-smocks, the washed-out wild gillivers, I became conscious of something near my feet, something little and dark, moving indefinitely. I had found again the larky's nest. I perceived the yellow beaks, the bulging eyelids of two tiny larks, and the blue lines of their wing-quills. The indefinite movement was the swift rise and fall of the brown-fledged backs, over which waved long strands of fine down. The two little specks of birds lay side by side, beak to beak their tiny bodies rising and falling in quick unison. I gently put down my fingers to touch them. They were warm, gratifying to find them warm in the midst of so much cold and wet. I became curiously absorbed in them, as an eddy of wind stirred the strands of down. When one fledgling moved uneasily, shifting his soft ball, I was quite excited. But he nestled down again, with his head close to his brother's. In my heart of hearts, I longed for someone to nestle against, someone who would come between me and the coldness and wetness of the surroundings. I envied the two little miracles exposed to any tread, yet so serene. It seemed as if I were always wandering, looking for something which they had found, even before the light broke into their shell. I was cold. The lilacs in the mill garden looked blue and perished. I ran with my heavy clogs and my heart heavy with vague longing, down to the mill, while the wind blanched the sycamores and pushed the sullen pines rudely, for the pines were sulking because their million creamy sprites could not fly wet-winged. The horse-chestnuts bravely kept their white candles erect in the socket of every bough, though no sun came to light them. Drearily, a cold swan swept up the water, trailing its black feet, clacking its great hollow wings, rocking the frightened water-hens, and insulting the staid black-necked geese. What did I want that I turned thus from one thing to another? At the end of June the weather became fine again. Hay-harvest was to begin as soon as it settled. There were only two fields to be mown this year, to provide just enough stuff to last until the spring. As my vacation had begun I decided I would help and that we three the father george and i would get in the hay without hard existence i rose the first morning very early before the sun was well up the clear sound of challenging cocks could be heard along the valley in the bottoms over the water and over the lush wet grass the night mist still stood white and substantial as i passed along the edge of the meadow the cow parsnip was as tall as i frothing up to the top of the hedge putting the faded hawthorn to a wan blush. Little early birds, I had not heard the lark, fluttered in and out of the foamy meadow sea, plunging under the surface of flowers washed high in one corner, swinging out again, dashing past the crimson sorrel cresset. Under the froth of flowers were the purple vetch clumps, yellow milk vetches, and the scattered pink of the wood bettoni, and the floating stars of marguerites. There was a weight of honeysuckle on the hedges, where pink roses were waking up for their broad-spread flight through the day. Morning silvered the swathes of the far meadow, and swept in smooth, brilliant curves round the stones of the brook. Morning ran in my veins. Morning chased the silver, darting fish out of the depth, and I, who saw them, snapped my fingers at them, driving them back. I heard Trip barking, so I ran towards the pond. The punt was at the island, where from behind the bushes I could hear George whistling. I called to him, and he came to the water's edge, half-dressed. But your towel, he called, and come on. I was back in a few moments, and there stood my care on, fluttering in the cool air. One good push sent us to the islet. I made haste to undress, for he was ready for the water, tripped dancing round, barking with excitement at his new appearance. He wonders what's happened to me he said, laughing, pushing the dog playfully away with his bare foot. Trip bounded back and came leaping up, licking him with little caressing licks. He began to play with the dog, and directly they were rolling on the fine turf, the laughing, expostulating, naked man, and the excited dog, who thrust his great head onto the man's face, licking, and when flung away, rushed forward again, snapping playfully at the naked arms and breasts. At last, George lay back, laughing and panting, holding Trip by the two forefeet which were half-planted on his breast, while the dog, also panting, reached forward his head for a flickering lick at the throat pressed back on the grass and the mouth thrown back out of reach. When the man had thus lain still for a few moments, and the dog was just laying his head against his master's neck to rest too, I called, and George jumped up and plunged into the pond with me, Trip after us. The water was icily cold, and for a moment deprived me of my senses. When I began to swim, soon the water was buoyant, and I was sensible of nothing but the vigorous poetry of action. I saw George swimming on his back, laughing at me, and in an instant I had flung myself like an impulse after him. The laughing face vanished as he swung over and fled, and I pursued the dark head and the ruddy neck. Tripp, the wretch, came paddling towards me, interrupting me. Then, all bewildered with excitement, he scudded to the bank. I chuckled to myself as I saw him run along, then plunge in and go plodding to George. I was gaining. He tried to drive off the dog, and I gained rapidly. As I came up to him and caught him with my hand on his shoulder, there came a laughter from the bank. It was Emily. I trod the water and threw handfuls of spray at her. She laughed and blushed. Then Trip waded out to her and she fled swiftly from his shower-bath. George was floating just beside me, looking up and laughing. We stood and looked at each other as we rubbed ourselves dry. He was well proportioned, and naturally of handsome physique, heavily limbed. He laughed at me, telling me I was like one of Aubrey Beardsley's long, lean, ugly fellows. I referred him to many classic examples of slenderness, declaring myself more exquisite than his grossness which amused him. But I had to give him and bow to him, and he took on an indulgent, gentle manner. I laughed and submitted, for he knew how I admire the noble white fruitfulness of his form. As I watched him, he stood in white relief against the mass of green. He polished his arm, holding it out straight and solid. He rubbed his hair into curls, while I watched the deep muscles of his shoulders and the band stand out in his neck as he held it firm. I remember the story of Hannibal. He saw I had forgotten to continue my rubbing, and laughing he took hold of me and began to rub me briskly, as if I were a child, or rather a woman he loved and did not fear. I left myself quite limply in his hands, and to get a better grip of me he put his arm round me and pressed me against him, and the sweetness of the touch of our naked bodies, one against the other, was superb. It satisfied, in some measure, the vague, indecipherable yearning of my soul. And it was the same with him. When he had rubbed me all warm, he let me go, and we looked at each other with eyes of still laughter. And our love was perfect for a moment, more perfect than any love I have known since, either for man or woman. We went together down to the fields, he to mow the island of grass he had left standing the previous evening, I to sharpen the machine knife, to mow out the hedge-bottoms with the scythe, and to rake the swathes from the way of the machine when the unmown grass was reduced to a triangle. The cool, moist fragrance of the morning, the intentional stillness of everything, of the tall bluish trees, of the wet flowers, of the trustful moths folded and unfolded in the fallen swathes, was a perfect medium of sympathy the horses moved with a still dignity obeying his commands when they were harnessed and the machine oiled still he was loath to mar the perfect morning but stood looking down the valley i shan't mow these fields any more he said and the fallen silver swathes flickered back his regret and the faint scent of the limes was wistful so much of the field was cut so much remained to cut then it was ended. This year the elder flowers were widespread over the corner bushes, and the pink roses fluttered high above the hedge. They were the same flowers on the grass as we had known many years. We should not know them any more. But merely to have moaned them is worth having lived for, he said, looking at me. We felt the warmth of the sun trickling through the morning's mist of coolness. You see that sycamore, he said, "'that bushy one beyond the big willow. "'I remember when Father broke off the leading shoot "'because he wanted a fine straight stick. "'I can remember I felt sorry. "'It was running up so straight with such a fine balance of leaves. "'You know how a young, strong sycamore looks about nine feet high. "'It seemed a cruelty. "'When you are gone and we are left from here, "'I shall feel like that, as if my leading shoot were broken off. "'You see, the tree is spoiled.' It high went on growing. I believe I shall grow faster. I can remember the bright red stalks of the leaves as he broke them off from the bough. He smiled at me, half proud of his speech. Then he swung into the seat of the machine, having attended to the horses' heads. He lifted the knife. Goodbye, he said, smiling whimsically back at me. The machine started. The bed of the knife fell and the grass shivered and dropped over. I watched the heads of the daisies and the splendid lines of the cocks grass quiver, shake against the crimson burnet, and drop over. The machine went singing down the field, leaving a track of smooth velvet green in the way of the swathe-board. The flowers in the wall of uncut grass waited unmoved, as the days wait for us. The sun caught in the uplicking scarlet-sorrel flames the butterflies woke, and I could hear the fine ring of his wha from the far corner. Then he turned, and I could see only the tossing ears of the horses and the white of his shoulder as they moved along the wall of high grass on the hill-slope. I sat down under the elm to file the sections of the knife. Always as he rode, he watched the falling swathe, only occasionally calling the horses into line. It was his voice which rang the morning awake. When we were at work, we hardly noticed one another. Yet his mother had said, George is so glad when you're in the field. He doesn't care how long the day is. Later, when the morning was hot and the honeysuckle had ceased to breathe and all the other scents were moving in, in the air about us, and all the field was down, when I'd seen the last trembling ecstasy of the hair-bells trembling to fall, when the thick clump of purple vetch had sunk when the green sways were settling and the silver sways were glistening and glittering as the sun came along them in the hot ripe morning we worked together turning the hay tipping over the yesterday's swathes with our forks and bringing yesterday's fresh hidden flowers into the death of sunlight it was then that we talked of the past and speculated on the future as the day grew older and less wistful we forgot everything and worked on singing and sometimes I would recite him verses as we went. And sometimes I would tell him about books. Life was full of glamour for us both. End of part two, chapter eight.